people think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh, like Creator Kate. This Glade Orchid Neroli candle is so fresh. It's like fresh as watching a sunrise in Santorini. Yeah, I'm going to need more of those. Explore the new Glade Fresh collection today. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, you are, you're, I don't even know what country you're in today. You're international though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm in London. I was going to be like, Ben is in Berlin today. No, you're somewhere abroad. You're I'm London. in London and going to Amsterdam tomorrow. Oh, I love Amsterdam. Yes. And uh, Amsterdam's such a cool city. I'm seeing friend of the pod, John, and I'm sober tomorrow. And there'll be news TBD about that shortly. Awesome. Um, well, it's very cool. A little international flair. We have a great show for you all today. We're going to talk a lot about Ukraine. Uh, we're going to talk about elections in France and Slovenia, what Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter could mean internationally, and more. And then, Ben, a uh, special interview coming. It, it's sort of a, a, a two greatest hits albums put into one. Tell us about it. Yeah, so I, uh, you know, I, people may remember, world those may remember that at the beginning of the war in Ukraine, Two of our go-to reporters who we had on a couple of times each were Christopher Miller, then of BuzzFeed, now Politico, because BuzzFeed no longer does news, apparently. And um, Max so Kevin. Does a, yeah, what, that's so shitty, by the way. We should just say, like, they're, they're like shutting down their investigations team. This is an amazing investigations team. Yeah, they've, they've cultivated a lot of good journalism there over the years, and they're just shutting it down, right? And so uh, Chris Miller, at least landed at Politico, which is good, good for him. He'll be back in Ukraine reporting again shortly. And then Max Seddon, who uh, reports the Financial Times. And I wanted, we're two months into this, even though it feels like two years. And uh, I had them on together, which we haven't done. It's a new format to have a couple of people on like that. They know each other. It turns out they used to report together in Ukraine. I didn't know Donbass. that. I didn't know that either until we got on the Zoom. Um, and, you know, Max has covered Russia and, and Chris has covered Ukraine. And so I wanted to step back, do big picture with them. What's surprised on the Ukrainian side, on the Russian side, where is this going? How do people feel about that? What's it been like for them to report on this? So it's a very cool interview um, from two of the smartest guests we could possibly have. So it's exciting. People should stick around and check it out. Nice. Two, uh, two like Worldo Autobots combined into a uh, yeah, 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 take yeah. on the Decepticons. Who's the Decepticons here? I guess like Toss and uh, yeah. RT. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, two quick things before we get to the news, Ben. So John Favreau is like stepping on our block here and kind of like getting up in our shit because mm. this week on Offline, he had a Russian propaganda expert and journalist named Peter Pomerantsev on to talk about the distortion of truth and reality inside Putin's Russia. So if you like that kind of thing, check out John uh, talking to Peter uh, on Sunday. If you don't like it, just tweet at him a warning to get out of our shit. Um, also, another great show for you from Crooked. Check out Hot Take. Uh, it's the newest Crooked Media podcast. It's focused on the climate crisis uh, and all the ways the media and society are talking about, not talking about, dealing with it, not dealing with it. This week, they break down the origins of Earth Day. They name some of the biggest enemies in the fossil fuel industry. It's a great show. Uh, you know, it's it's hard, Ben, as you and I have learned, to talk a lot about climate change because it can just feel like unrelentingly depressing but they take on the issue in a way that's really funny um, and is, uh, you know, engaging and enlightening at the same time. So check out Hot Take every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, 
So Ben, I, you know, you do a lot of the international perspective on Ukraine this week uh, in the interviews later. So I figured we can focus more on what's happening from a U.S. perspective, and there's a lot of news there too. So over the weekend, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, Secretary of State Tony Blinken traveled to Kiev. They had meetings with President Zelensky. They talked to a bunch of other Ukrainian officials. While there, they pledged, I think, $713 million in new assistance for Ukraine, which brings the total to $3.7 billion since the invasion began, which is really an eye-popping number. Um, Tony also announced the there will be a new U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Uh, that position has been open for several years. And he said the State Department is going to reopen the embassy in Lviv and then eventually Kiev in the coming weeks. During that trip, um, Secretary Austin said the U.S. goal is to see Russia so weakened that it could no longer have the power to invade a neighboring state. That comment jumped out at a lot of people as potentially expanding the mission uh, a bit, uh, and it became, you know, fodder for critics of the U.S. effort to say that, you know, America, the cynical take, right, is America is really involved in this war in Ukraine because they want to weaken Russia or punish Russia for the long term. Austin's team says, no, the point he's trying to make was that in advance of negotiations over a ceasefire or a peace deal between Ukraine and Russia, we should weaken their military as much as we can, whatever. But Ben, you know, we're seeing this steady escalation of U.S. involvement, right? More weapons, heavier weapons, new drones. What did you make of that comment from Austin and concerns from some folks that this U.S. mission might be growing beyond just, you know, repelling Russia from Ukraine? I mean, I think it kind of is one of those comments that says out loud what like the elephant in the room may be, right? Which is that on the one hand, I think there's a very strong basis for the U.S. to be providing arms and support to a sovereign government of Ukraine, right? Again, as we talked about, this is not like an insurgency against an existing government. This is like a sovereign country that wants help to fight off an invasion. Um, But, you know, it's just the case that the way in which, you know, foreign policy and national security can work sometimes is, oh, it could also be an opportunity to kind of weaken the Russian military and deal a blow to the Russian military and Russian prestige. And part of the problem with kind of applying that rationale to what you're doing in Ukraine is there's an kind of endless escalatory cycle to that, right? Like that, that suggests that the goal is less to defend Ukraine and more to kind of defeat Russia in some meta sense. And I think that is a bit dangerous, right? And, and you hear in the interview, even from Chris and Max who have, you know, front row seats and have seen the worst of these atrocities, they both spoke of the kind of unease about um, at, at what point does an effort to really humiliate Putin lead to like things that feel unimaginable, like the use of nuclear weapons, use of chemical weapons. Um, and so this is like, I'm sympathetic to Austin and, and the people in the US government who want to do everything they can to help Ukraine. And, and obviously are you know, um, completely repulsed by what Putin's doing. Um, but I do think you have to kind of keep like the, the fuck around what you're doing as focused as possible, right? And so the question should narrowly be, how are we helping Ukraine defend itself? How, and that, as we talked about, that may include helping Ukraine um, be able to go on offense against Russian military. Um, but, you know, once we start using this as a broader uh, opening to take on Russia, um, you know, it does raise questions about where that ends, you know? Um, yeah. And so I, I see why Austin said that. It's 
not an unusual thing to think. You wouldn't want Russia to be able to invade a neighbor. It's a natural objective to have. But I do think that it was right to clarify it and, and kind of make clear that like, hey, look, this is this is a really right now about Ukraine and not some Putin's the one who wants to conflict with the United States. Like we just want to help Ukraine. And that, that should be the framework through which we're looking at this. Yeah, it both like jumped out at me and made me cringe a little bit, but also I got it. But yeah, I mean, speaking of escalation, I mean, Ukraine is now seeking $5 billion per month in economic assistance, $2 billion of that is from the US. It's worth mentioning that the UN Secretary General is in Moscow, I believe right now, meeting with Putin, hoping for a peace deal, but I'm not sure that there's a lot of hope there. But also, Ben, you know, speaking of escalation, there is concern that Russia might be expanding its invasion to include another country, to include uh, Transnistria, which is a breakaway province from Moldova. Uh, Transnistria is controlled by pro-Russian separatists. There are Russian troops there. If you're looking at a map, Transnistria is a tiny little sliver of territory on the border of Moldova and Ukraine. If you sort of go just west of Odessa and go up along the river there, you can sort of see it. Um, In recent days, Russian officials have said that the Russian-speaking population is being repressed in Transnistria, which is you know, something we've heard before from them as a pretext to invade Ukraine. Somebody bombed the building that uh, houses the security services there. So the fear is that Russia is going to attempt to occupy all of southern Ukraine, essentially cut the country off from the Black Sea, and then potentially use that land bridge as a way to extend uh, their invasion forces into Transnistria and possibly the rest of Moldova. So that is a pretty escalatory and disconcerting yeah. development, which sort of speaks to why Austin might say, yeah, we don't want the capacity to yeah. invade another country. Yeah, no, that's right. And I, just very quickly on the economic aid, because I've mentioned this before, you know, one of the proposals that's certainly gotten some traction in the on left here in, in Europe is Ukraine has this massive amount of debt. Um, and that's obviously growing. And you know, one way to provide economic assistance to Ukraine would be to forgive a significant amount of that debt, which would probably be at a value of much greater than $5 billion. So um, there are different ways of providing assistance to Ukraine other than just weapons or just cash, um, uh, although we're going to be doing both of those things. Um, on, on the Moldova point, it does feel like, and we, I talked to Chris and Max about this, but like, you know, Russia's kind of reverted in the incapacity of conquering Kiev and dislodging the Ukrainian government. They've reverted to the original playbook that most people thought that they'd pursue, which is conquer the Donbass, eastern Ukraine, connect it down through Mariupol to uh, Crimea. And then the more aggressive version of that is move west through Odessa all the way to Transnistria. And, and if you think about it, Russia's had several of these frozen pieces of territory where there's this kind of de facto separatist governance. They've had Transnistria and Moldova. South Ossetia and Abkhazia, Georgia, and then the Luhansk and Donetsk and Ukraine. And what mm-hmm. what Putin may just very well do is this is the moment to just lift the facade on these being frozen conflicts with indigenous, you know, separatist governments and just try to make them all Russian, you know. Um, and that would obviously be hugely escalatory in terms of political consequences in a number of ways. One, even with Mariupol, it's impossible for me to see Ukraine ever agreeing to a peace deal that like cedes Mariupol to Russia. Right. I mean, no, it'd be one thing to talk about Crimea, but then to talk about the Donbass and Mariupol, like, so part of what this escalation does on Russia's side is, is make any agreement that the Ukrainians could ever accept 
almost impossible to imagine, right? Um, then the second thing is Moldova, another non-NATO country in Europe, yeah, invading a second European country and trying to bite off a chunk of its territory, even if it's just Transnistria. Um, you know, that again, further ups the ante on the West and uh, on NATO. And I'm sure that that informs part of how Austin's thinking about this, which is that we want to make this so difficult for the Russians in Ukraine that they they don't try to do it in Moldova. And if they did it in Moldova, they might try to do something in the Baltics, which are NATO countries. And and look, you know, that's that's a real issue. And, and so I think that informs why you would want to be providing the military support to the Ukrainians to defend themselves and to stop this kind of Russian war machine uh, from bearing down on not just Ukrainians, but on Moldovans. Again, like, if we're really serious about this, so like, I'm in Europe, like, they're still buying gas here every day, hundreds of millions of dollars flowing in to finance that uh, Russian war machine. It's not just weapons that that should be on the tables as, as we're talking about this. But I, I do think that we're now in this kind of war of attrition that's about Eastern and Southern Ukraine and potentially Moldova. Um, and and that, uh, that preserves a Ukrainian government in Kyiv, but it it, it attempts to dismember Ukraine and and create an outcome that the West could never accept, which is a recipe for kind of an open-ended conflict, you know? Yeah, and, you know, I mean, politically, the idea that Zelensky could accept a peace deal that leaves a huge chunk of his population under Russian rule after what we learned about happened in Bucha or the treatment of civilians in Mariupol, I mean, it's completely politically untenable, right? So everyone pushing Zelensky to make some peace deal where he cedes territory, like the Russians are making that more and more difficult every single day. And I think like, that's just kind of the reality here. I'm not sure what people want from the guy. It's just reality and they're consuming more territory. And part of what they're doing that's really chilling, Tommy, is that precisely because they can't occupy places because there's such Ukrainian resistance, in Mariupol, what they seem to do is just try to depopulate the whole city so that you can't have resistance if there are no Ukrainians there because you've killed so many of them, yeah. deported them, driven them out of the city. And so Odessa is another place I'd watch, right? Which is that like, if they're serious about connecting all this territory, um, they have to go through Odessa. And, and, and you see pretty ferocious Ukrainian defense around Odessa probably for that reason. Yeah. Um, lot, much more about Ukraine uh, in the interviews later. So check that out. But uh, just a couple stories I saw, Ben, that I wanted to flag for viewers that they should check out, too. Um, the Washington Post had a fascinating story about how hackers and I, I guess Ukrainian intelligence folks sabotaged the railways in Belarus and completely screwed up Russia's efforts to take Kiev and to get troops and material into the city. Very worth reading. There's some good reporting about um, former German Chancellor Gerard Schroeder yeah. and how he was on the take from Russian oil and gas companies and is just a total scumbag and got hammered with some <laughs> New York Times reporter and was willing yeah. to like just chat about Putin calling him and being his boy. Um, it, interesting said, Tommy, to read that. it said it said he drank copious amounts of white wine during the interview, which <laughs> just, is code for he got completely hammered during the interview. And said way too much. Yeah, but like fascinating to read that, you know, in little pariah he's become and then see all the pressure on Olaf Scholz to uh, encourage Germany to do more to help Ukraine, both with weapons and cutting off oil and gas. And last thing I saw, Ben, and you and I have both sort of seized on this as being a really interesting piece of this story. There was a Twitter thread by a guy named Micah Flea, who is the head of info security at The Intercept. 
And he was just talking about all the hacking and all the releases of Russian data that we've seen since the beginning of the war. It's like literally hundreds of gigabytes of data from state industries, mining, logging, banks, investment firms, state and local governments. Most of it has probably not even been like looked at at all at this point. Uh, but it's going to be sitting there on these you know, hacker websites for years to come. It'll get reviewed. It'll become part of Russian politics. So just a fascinating like long burn timeline component of this war. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, the digital war that we talked about last week, right, which is not even being waged only by states, but by individual hackers, you know, um, yeah. is going to have a long tail to it. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. So let's talk about some elections. So first in France, uh, we talked about this a couple of times, the round one and the polling leading to round two. President Emmanuel Macron uh, won a second term. He'll be the first French president to get reelected in 20 years. Macron beat right-wing uh, racist nut job Marie Le Pen badly. He got 58% of the vote. She got 41% of the vote. But it's worth pointing out that Le Pen improved her standing from 2017 when she only got 33.9% to Macron's 66%. So, you know, look, I, I, I was uh, a bit of a bedwetter to coin a – or dig up a 2016 phrase, Ben, about this race – the trajectory of the polling seemed bad going in, but obviously he won handily and a win is a win. Um, Macron has five more years. But, you know, the flip side of this is like Macron is now term limited. The left doesn't seem to have it together in France. Macron's party on Marche is is really just like a vehicle for him. It's not like a big political movement. Um, that setup worries me a little bit, right? Because France is facing a tough political environment, energy prices, maybe a recession, the war in Ukraine. Le Pen is like a racist, like velociraptor testing the fences for political weakness. They have parliamentary elections in June that are going to be key in determining what Macron can or cannot get done. The early polling shows that he could get a clean majority in parliament, but Le Pen's party could see huge gains in terms of parliamentary representation. I saw one poll that showed her uh, her party winning between 75 and 100 seats. They only have eight of them now. So I don't know, Ben, when you looked at these results, what was your read? Like how optimistic or pessimistic did it make you feel? Uh, and then let's, after that, talk about the broader trends in Europe. So I think you, you had a really good summary because I, I did look at the glass half full in the immediate result in the sense that, look, it's set up pretty ideally for like a Le Pen. Um, Macron, not very popular. Uh, 
totally alienated yeah. the left. Um, he's dealing with the same crap that Biden is, right? Inflation, COVID fatigue, all the rest of it. And, and the fact that in that environment, you know, she still kind of had a ceiling or like she crested it, you know, what, 41%, which is a lot. It's, you know, more than I would like a far right candidate in France. But let's face it, like, yeah, we've had a far right candidate in the United States who did, who was dumber than Le Pen and did better right. than that and actually won, right? Um, that's good news that like there was a center that held in France pretty healthily, right? 58 to 41 is not that close. But what you said is the, the more worrisome trend, which is, okay, well, where does French politics go from here? Because Macron has succeeded by kind of almost splintering, exploding the traditional parties to the left and right, which has just left him in the kind of radical neo-lib center and then um, <laughs> Le Pen on the right. And they're making inroads at the local level on the far right, at the parliamentary level. And so I think that while we breathe a sigh of relief about this result, like there has to be like on March when he built it, he thought he, he thought he said it was going to become this political party. Not really. It's basically been something of a vehicle for Macron's political ambitions. And he's not going to be around after this term. So this does mean that the battle is going to take place in different spaces. Like there needs to be a new mm -hmm. movement on the left or on the center right that is strong enough to withstand the next wave of far right politics. Um, and Macron is not is not the answer to that because you know he just won re-election for the last time. So, so I think that the, the 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 center of gravity shifts to can France generate a new political movement. Um, there's five years to do it, um, such that you you beat back Le Pen or whoever the Le Pen flavor is next time. Um, and and that you know that's going to be some. You can't just breathe this as we've learned in the United States. You can't just breathe a sigh of relief and then expect the far right to go away. They tend to redouble their efforts in that environment. Yeah. yeah. We're learning that one the hard way. Yeah. Um, you know, to, to your point about like half glass full, there was more good news out of Europe Sunday uh, from Slovenia, where a right wing nationalist populist party uh, lost a bunch of ground in parliamentary elections. The centrist pro-Europe party beat the right wing party by about 10%. So uh, Robert Golub, I'm probably not saying that right, but the leader of the Freedom Movement Party, which is the more centrist party, is likely to form a government with some smaller left wing parties that'll topple the current right wing government. This is great because your your favorite leader, Viktor Orban, uh, the right wing dictator in Hungary had poured money uh, into this race to try to juice the media in this race. So it does feel like, you know, there was a period, I don't know, a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, how long have we been doing this fucking show, where we were quite worried about right-wing governments kind of ascendant, and now you are seeing two pretty significant losses for these right-wing populists. So it's interesting to see. Yeah, no, it's a big deal. And because we mentioned this, you know, um, not to sleep on Slovenia a couple weeks ago after the Hungarian election, um, I have I've a, a friend who's been involved in the organizing there who kept telling me they're going to win big, they're going to win big. And I, you know, I'd heard that uh, confidence from some Hungarians, not that they win big, but that they had a better shot. But I think what we learned, though, is that oh, I thought you were going to say that Hillary can't lose Pennsylvania. I heard that from Hillary, too. So it's not, <laughs> let me just not just put this in the poor Hungarians. Like we've heard this in the United States. What we learned, though, is that, you know, uh, number one, the far right is not like ascendant across Europe, right? right? Like they, they held serve in Hungary, which I'll come back to in a second. But like, you know, Slovenia, they're, they're losing ground in Central Europe, which is a place where they had been gaining ground. Um, and, and I think that is a bellwether, right? Like if 
France held where it was and Hungary held where it was. Well, here's a place that flipped and it's a small country, yeah. but like it does show you that, that the, the playbook is not, you know, infinitely replicated, you know, from Hungary on to other places. And it does also show you that like, look at Hungary, like as we talked about, that wasn't a fair fight. Like Orban dominated, controlled the media, intimidated the opposition, intimidated people from even thinking they could vote for the opposition. Um, and in Slovenia, like there was some of that present, but not enough of it. And, and people were able to overcome that. So I think it does show you that like, you know, the far right is not 10 feet tall here. They're, they're losing in France, they're losing in Slovenia. Just Orban got reelected, but he got reelected because he fixed the system um, to his whims. And, and there's stuff to build on there. And, and people should go to Slovenia and you know, what did you guys do? <laughs> like what, what worked there? It can be replicated in some of these other countries in Central and Eastern Europe where there have been uh, you know, trouble getting traction on the, on the center left. Yeah, I mean, to sort of round out this um, this conversation about democracy in Europe, I mean, it is worth noting that there's been some considerable democratic backsliding in Turkey, where recently courts sentenced uh, several well-known activists to very long jail sentences, in some cases life in prison, for charges related to protests. Um, so Erdogan is certainly clamping down on any semblance of uh, an opposition to him or free speech or, you know, the ability of people to protest his regime. Yeah, and he's probably like Erdogan has been very skillful over the years, including in the Obama years, um, which we have to obviously acknowledge in like leveraging when like Europe and the United States needs him for other stuff. Um, like, you know, whether it's refugees or ISIS or whatever, yep. you know, he would leverage that to like, don't mess around in my politics. Don't criticize what I'm doing because you need me on this. And right now he's in the middle of a lot of stuff on Ukraine and being generally supportive of the Ukrainians and probably thinking that that should inoculate him against criticism. I hope it doesn't, right? Because um, like a Turkey that is you know, drifting further and further away from the democratic world in its internal politics is ultimately gonna get there in its foreign policy too. You know, So yeah, I, I, yeah. I think, I, I just hope that like there's a capacity to call out these kind of abuses and excesses you know, while recognizing that Turkey has other reasons to support Ukraine for its own interests. Yeah, well said. Uh, so if you've turned on Twitter lately, Ben, uh, you've probably seen many an overwrought tweet about Elon Musk and Twitter itself. Um, we can litigate that, we can not. But I also thought it would be fun to take a minute to think about the impacts that Musk's purchase could have from an international perspective. Because like, there, there's a few different pieces of this. There's a lot we don't know yet. But I mean, big picture, obviously, if Donald Trump gets back on the platform, that has a global impact. It's been nice not having a president tweeting uh, nuclear threats, for example, if, if Elon rolls back moderation on Twitter, that makes life generally suck for users. But more specifically, there's some things Elon says he, he wants to do that I think would really impact people uh, in foreign countries. First, he says he wants to get rid of anonymous accounts. So he wants all accounts to be from verified humans. I, I kind of, I get the sentiment there. I understand the thinking, maybe it's a good idea. I don't know. But I think it also could be chilling for journalists and activists who use anonymous accounts to publish information about government officials in places where they don't have as robust a freedom of speech as we do. Um, second, Elon says he wants to open source the Twitter algorithm. Again, I have zero technical understanding of what that would entail, but it does seem worth thinking about which entities would have the ability to understand that information and use it to their advantage. It seems more likely that it would be a government or an intel agency or whoever that could manipulate that information. And then third, I mean, 
I wonder what leverage this sale could give foreign actors who want Twitter to do stuff. For example, we know that in 2021, the Indian government demanded that Twitter censor critics of their handling of COVID. How will Elon respond uh, to those demands? How will Elon respond if the Indian government says, censor these accounts, or we're not going to let you sell Teslas in Mumbai? You know, so uh, like a lot to think through. I mean, I saw Elon just tweeted that free speech to him is complying with the law, no more, no less. He doesn't seem to understand that there isn't a global set of laws around speech. You know, maybe yeah. he's referring to the United States, but what does that mean for a user in Nigeria? I, I don't know. Any thoughts on this one? Yeah. I mean, first of all, like it's kind of fucked up to have like an economy where uh, two billionaires, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, kind of personally control the means of, it used to be the means of production. Now they control the means of information and communication, right? Yeah. Uh, don't don't so love it. We have oligarchs of our own, and it's just not healthy that a guy can spend $54 billion buying Twitter as like a personal tool. That said, on the anonymous point, look, I, 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 I totally agree with you that um, there, there are points, there, there are individual cases where anonymous accounts on social media are critical to the safety and security of important work that's being done. And I should add, to get at the issue he wants to deal with, I think, uh, presumably what he wants to deal with is bots and the distortion of speech and the distortion of the Twitter algorithm by the kind of mass scaling up of the use of automated speech. Elon Musk is the technologist enthusiast, right? There are, there have to be, I think, uh, and I, I'm pretty sure from the conversations I've had, there are technological ways of determining what is a bot and what is a human without getting rid of anonymity in general, right? So it requires a little extra work and probably a little extra resources of which Elon Musk seems to have a lot. But if his objective is to get bots, automated speech off the platform, I think that's different than saying you're getting rid of anonymity in general. Because if he says he only wants humans on there, I think that should include anonymous humans who choose to tweet themselves anonymously which I think mm -hmm. is different than a bot, which is like an algorithm running its own play to amplify and juice speech. That's one point. On the, on the open sourcing of the algorithm, I don't quite understand what he means. I don't really I, there. I, at a minimum, there is a need for tech companies to be more transparent about their algorithms, how they function, what speech is getting juiced, how that's working. That doesn't necessarily mean you like publish the algorithm online and let other users impact it, it should mean like government regulators, <laughs> you know, like Obama used this example in a speech he gave on disinformation at Stanford the other day, which I, I thought was pretty good. So I'll use it too, which is like, okay, you're the hot dog company. You don't want to share your recipe for your hot dogs publicly so that your competitors can steal it. But you know what? You got to share it with the food inspector so they know that the hot dogs are healthy, right? So like, what, what we have to get to with Twitter or anybody else is, is a, a regulatory capacity where there's somebody who's able to look over these algorithms and determine whether they are prioritizing the dissemination of sensationalist speech and disinformation, all the rest of it. it that, that's different than this kind of, I'm going to publish the algorithm online. And so, so here too, I think, you know, we, we need more details. And then on the free speech kind of absolutism, um, yeah, like he's going to run into the fact that most countries have different laws on this. And, you know, uh, he's, like you said, vulnerable to leverage from places where Tesla operates. That's a, that's a big, bright, blinking flag as it begins with. 
But then also, like, if, if we're just open season here, there's a reason people went, to, you're, Tommy, you're the one who, like, first really got me looking into 4chan and 8chan and the places where um, QAnon and other conspiracy theories really took off. Like, Twitter was clearly doing something that pushed those people off that platform. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily, like, good for anybody if Twitter just becomes the kind of repository of, of every completely insane uh, QAnon type conspiracy theory in the name of Elon Musk's kind of personal, you know, Silicon Valley salon view of free speech, you know? So look, he, yeah. the, the in, intentions he's articulating are not like bad ones. Like we, we'd like to get rid of bots and automated speech that you know, we'd like to be more transparent about algorithms. We, we want to protect free speech, but like how that's implemented could go badly wrong too so so yeah uh and then and and you know it's not clear to me that elon musk like listens to a lot of people around him so we'll have to watch this one yeah like i don't hate the guy tesla's great spacex is cool he's obviously a genius but like i don't think he's thought hard about any of this stuff and like all the recent tweets seem to confirm that feeling like if you think free speech is just about one set of laws in one country that doesn't suggest you've spent a lot of time thinking about how hard these questions are. Yeah. I mean, and it just, it just, there's like a cult of personality from the, I mean, look uh, at Jack wasn't that much better. Your buddy. Um, No. Twitter's founder, Jack Dorsey, like, you know, he created a platform that, or he helped create a platform with a lot of help, I'm sure from people who knew what they were doing. And it became wildly successful mainly because of its users. And that guy acted like, you know, he was personally responsible for, for like th- these guys equate their wealth with knowledge. <laughs> you, know? Um, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they, they, they like if so, you have a hundred billion dollars, you're a hundred billion times smarter than somebody with $1. Like that's not like how this works. Like you made some smart bets and, you know, gutsy business decisions maybe, or, you had one good idea and now puts you in this position. I, 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 this is why we need regulation around social media is because this shouldn't be us like sitting around hoping like, th- like we regulate airplanes. Like we don't sit around and hope that a billionaire who buys an airline is going to make sure that it's safe. We like expect the government to make sure that planes aren't falling out of the sky. Like I, there's such a public safety and health component to these platforms that I know it's hard to do legislatively right now, but at some point we got to get to a place where it's not just Elon Musk's decision or anybody else. It's not a shot at Elon Musk. I don't think any one human being should make all these decisions about a platform that impacts the lives of billions of people. Uh, we, that's not how we look at food or medicine or frankly, traditional media for that matter. I don't know why there's this carve out um, infinitely for technology platforms. Yeah, man. And I also just like, I don't believe these guys really have some deep seated libertarian pro free speech set of values. I think for a lot of them, it just is the easiest thing to say when you really mean like, keep the government out of the way of me making as much money as I want, however I want, period. You know, I mean, it just drives me crazy. Liber- libertarianism um, it seems to conveniently overlap with maximum profit model, you know? <laughs> yeah, it really does. Um, two other quick things before we get to your interview. Um, just one issue to keep an eye on. Uh, over the weekend, we saw members of an Arab militia group called the Janjaweed attacking villages in Darfur, killing hundreds of civilians. 
it's a very troubling development given uh, the history of horrific violence we've seen in Darfur over the past two decades, and then just the generally unstable political situation in Sudan following the military coup last year. So just want to put a pin in that one uh, uh, because, you know, I, I don't know that I've seen, there's been some reporting on it, Ben, but I, I don't know that I've seen a lot of discussion, statements, conversation from the UN, from the US, from any of the sort of normal actors who might kind of jump in and try to calm things here. Yeah, um, you're right to flag it. And it's a sign, look, things have been going uh, not great with Sudan's yeah, uh, South. transition, uh, you know, stop and start transition uh, away from authoritarianism to democracy and then back to authoritarianism. And these are the kind of knock-on effects that happen, right? I mean, when the center doesn't hold and you've got that kind of tug of war in Khartoum, like, you know, these problems regenerate. Um, so it, it reminds you that the cost of, uh, uh, of like that civilian transition to democracy getting derailed, um, you know, ripples out in other ways. Yeah, sure does. Uh, last topic, and it's very appropriate, Ben, the year in London. Um, have you ever read about or watched one of those science shows about how when two supermassive black holes collide, it can actually warp the fabric of space and time? Yeah, I, I, I actually have mainly because my youngest daughter is like obsessed with space and black holes. And so uh, like I've done some reading just so I can sound like I know what I'm talking about, which I don't. There we I don't, go. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm like <laughs> Elon Musk, but I, I need to know just enough to, to describe what a black hole is. <laughs> that, that's exactly how I feel. Or as soon as I read it, it goes away out of my brain. Well, Ben, uh, something very similar happened recently, but it was the collision of uh, two supermassive assholes that sent a ripple through space and time. I'm, of course, talking about Pierce Morgan, Donald Trump, the interview kind of heard around the world. It wasn't that big a deal. It was mostly, I think, Trump stormed out. They both looked pretty sweaty and stupid. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you, because Trump did weigh in on Prince Harry and uh, Meghan Markle. Um, he called Prince Harry an embarrassment, who's being led around by his nose. He said, Harry is whipped like no person I think I've ever seen, um, wants them stripped of their royal titles, uh, said, I'm not a fan of Meghan and I wasn't from the beginning. I think poor Harry's being led around by his nose. I guess my question is, have you heard an adult man call another man whipped ever? I kind of thought that that was like a high school, middle school phrase that people kind of left back there. Yeah, this is the thing about Trump is like people describe him as like having like his finger on the pulse of like the zeitgeist and you know some way or, you know and yet like the terminology he uses is like decades out of date and was juvenile to begin with, right? I mean like it's like th this is the man who like really knows where culture's heading, like the guy who's talking about people being whipped, you know? It's just the child. And like, what a, what a shock, right? That he doesn't like uh, uh, the African-American woman in this equation. That's one he has the, the harshest words for here. Well, and he goes on with Piers Morgan, who he knows like famously claims he went on some right. date with Meghan Markle and stormed off like the British morning show and, and then doesn't like that Piers Morgan asks him about something other than bashing Meghan. Like literally his whole communication strategy for doing an interview with Piers Morgan, who's a dick. Uh, was just what, so he could like try it out as good Meghan Markle shots, you know, like, and then he's shocked to be asked like a, a an actual question. Like, this is not a very tough 
like Pierce Morgan was the guy who walked off the set when somebody challenged him on his attacks at Meghan Markle. Neither of these guys, you know, for all their faux toughness, like there's a snowflake quality here that should, yeah. should just be Pierce noted. Mo- should be noted, you know. Pier- Pierce, yeah, I think Trump uh, criticized Pierce for walking out of that conversation on the set of like Good Morning UK or whatever the hell it was. And yeah. then kind of walked out of the interview with yeah, Pierce yeah, yeah. because Pierce yeah. didn't agree with him that he like that the election was stolen. I don't know. It was just yeah. the most childish nonsense ever. Um, yeah, not not ideal. Um, okay. We are going to take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, you'll hear Ben's interview with Christopher Miller and Max Seddon uh, about all things Ukraine. So stick around for that. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Well, I'm very pleased uh, to be joined by uh, two extraordinary journalists who we've heard from before uh, on this podcast, uh, and we thought we'd take the opportunity to get them here together. Uh, Christopher Miller, who is uh, previously in BuzzFeed News, uh, but recently uh, shared with the world that he's now joined Politico, where he'll once again be uh, returning to Ukraine to, to report on the war. Uh, and Max Seddon, uh, who was at the Moscow Bureau of the Financial Times, is now in Riga uh, because of uh I, I don't know, Max, of Russian laws and enforcement of Russian laws that make it harder to report on the special military operation in Russia. But but thank you guys for, for joining. Thanks for having us back. Thanks for having me. So I, I wanted to start by just pulling back and because I, I went back and listened to kind of some of our interviews right around the time of uh, the invasion. Right. And, and Christopher, I'll start with you. I, I was really struck by you. You talked to us from eastern Ukraine. I think you're in Kharkiv. Um, and you described, I think, what a lot of people expected, which is a potential Russian effort to consolidate control of the Donbass, to take Mariupol, uh, and to pretend, you know, to kind of connect Russian-controlled territory in the east and the south. And we obviously went through a very different war um, in the initial weeks. And yet now it feels like what you initially described may be what's happening. I mean, what do you think? Why, how did we get to where we are now? Um, what do you think Russia tried to do and couldn't do? And, and how do you think they adjusted their strategy based on, on your experience covering the war? Yeah, I think when we, when we spoke last and, and, and you, you know, what I, what I laid out for you was more along the lines of what I think most of us expected to see, which was a, a more limited uh, in, invasion um, focused predominantly on the Donbass and in the South and you know, this concerted effort on the part of Russian forces to create this land bridge that they now have, um, you know, that would connect Russia's mainland with um, annexed Crimea. And, you know, I think I forget exactly when we spoke and if Putin had already um, signed the decree recognizing um, the Donetsk and Lugansk um, so-called separatist republics or not, if they had, you know, I think that was a big reason why we thought that, right, that this would be very focused on on taking the broader borders of of the Donbass region, not not just, you know, a couple of towns here or there or sending in troops to reinforce 
um, their separatist proxies, but rather, you know, his recognition of all of Donetsk Oblast and all of Lugansk Oblast being um, a part of, um, you know, those those so, so-called separatist republics. We thought that's what the 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 um, the, the military operation would be focused on. Um, but you know, I mean, obviously, what we saw was a full-scale invasion um, along the lines of you know i think what we were hearing from uh western intelligence agencies um could happen and you know i'm not sure many people truly expected it to 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 happen on that scale um you know i i think i think you know russia may have i you know I, i'd be curious to, to to know what max and uh has has heard from some of his you know sort of like more kremlin insider moscow um, folks who were a little closer to the like sort of center of decision making there, but I, I you know I, I wonder if the if if a full scale invasion on the you know to the extent that we saw early on was what was planned all along, or if things shifted in some kind of way in the days or you know a couple of weeks just before it um, to focus attention on on Kiev. Um, you know it, what we saw was I mean a pretty frantic you know, military operation and effort to try to encircle Kiev. And, um, you know, obviously the Ukrainians, um, you know, put up an incredible fight and defeated them in, um, uh, in a a way in in which I think, uh, you know, many people were were surprised to see. And, you know, I I, I would not expect Russia to admit defeat, and certainly they haven't. Um, You know, they've said that all along the the idea was to uh, to to weaken Kiev and to attack in various other places, and and then to you know focus efforts on um, the Donbass, and and this has been part of the plan all along. Um, you know, in, in reality, I think that they suffered a pretty humiliating defeat and don't want to admit to it publicly, and and so now we're seeing this refocused effort um, in the Donbass where they already have a large collection of forces where they can more easily mobilize and get things across the border. You know, they've got better logistics and supply lines heading into um, the northeast and east of the country. And, you know, they had success in the south very early on. So I think they're now, you know, using um, uh, the territories that they've gathered down there to, you know, push a little bit further in and and and, and potentially even further uh, west of Kherson, Um uh, you know, depending on, uh, you know, how seriously you take recent comments from one Russian commander who said that they'd like to take territory as far west as, as Moldova. Um, but yeah, I think that's how we got to where we are. You know, um, a, a pretty messy failed operation in the north um, has forced them to refocus efforts in the east where, you know, I think I think they do have have the upper hand um, given the number of forces that they have and the type of, of weaponry being used. Um and, you know, I think the, the Ukrainian success uh, there is really going to depend heavily on what the U.S. and the West is able to get to them and how quickly they're able to get it there. Well, Max, I was going to ask you, I mean, one of the things I was going to ask you is what, what do you think kind of surprised the Russians um, at, in the initial weeks of this war? Um, I mean, you at the time, I think you, you I remember talking to you and you notably raised the alarm bells about the kind of extremism of the the Putin speech, that lengthy history lesson that accompanied the beginning of the war as kind of foreshadowing more maximalist, uh, almost eliminationist ends when it came to Ukraine. Um, now that seems less militarily feasible, but 
But how, how have you seen the Russian thinking change on this and what, what might have surprised them that caused them to evolve their strategy? Well, one of the reasons why the initial Russian blitzkrieg failed was because they just had this completely distorted view of what Ukraine is as a country and what they were going to be able to to achieve. They seemed to have genuinely thought that they were going to get this over in, in a couple of days. So Zelensky said that they even found among uh, the uh, first wave of Russian forces, they, they found some parade uniforms uh, suggesting they were actually going to have some you know tank parade down for Shatek, the main dragon, Kiev on the third or the fourth day of, of the war. And there was this uh, piece that was published by mistake on the uh, Renovosti, the uh, Russian state newswire, that was clearly pre-written to be run. Oh, it's, you know, four days in, we've uh, conquered Ukraine now. You know, here's, here's what happens next. And that's because, uh, you know, it's, it's this sort of classic uh, colonial power mistake of this sort of, you know, overconfidence that they actually understand Ukraine much better than, than they did, that, uh, that there was a lot more sympathy for the um, uh, for Russia and the Russian position in Ukraine than, than there was. And, uh, you know, I, I, I remember hearing this from some uh, invasion cheerleaders, uh, the ones who are most excited about the war in Moscow before, before it happened. And uh, they were basically talking about it, you know, in the way that the, uh, the, the superistic way that the U.S. talked about Iraq before before they went in 2003, you know, they will read us as liberators, and that that obviously didn't happen. And uh, uh, also, we we had you know the Ukrainians turned out to be much much better than a lot of people expected, uh, and uh, the Russians turned out to be a a lot worse. So one of the problems that Russia the Russia had was uh, you know in, in addition to these you know uh, uh, these horrendous intelligence failures and there are some some reports they've already been uh, reprisals domestically within the security services and the army for these for these intelligence failures you also saw there was just this uh failure of uh russian military tactics and i'm i'm not a military expert i won't go into this in any great great detail but you would see and uh you know chris mentioned harkov that was one place where they would just send a few a few units uh you know without without proper support uh often even without proper equipment to wage some sort of street battle they would just drive and in, into into Kharkov and get completely slaughtered by by uh, Ukrainian um units and you, and you look at you know Russia starts uh, suffering these huge casualties a lot of senior um officers uh you know have been have been killed including uh between uh seven to ten generals depending on uh Who's who's counting and uh, what what you count as as confirmation? That's because uh, one one thing that Russia never did was you know, when it was modernizing its military was reform the the command structure, and so that creates both uh, you know issues on the ground because you know the generals have to be there to make to, to make anything actually happen. Whereas Ukraine, it did reform its command structure, and if you have you know much smaller unit out in the field with a much lower ranking commander, they're empowered to make decisions on, on their own. And then, you know, the conditions they've been fighting in, that's very important. It also creates uh, is issues of perception because um, uh, what, what gets re re relayed up the channel, and this is, you know, anyone who studied, I think, any authoritarian state or just read uh, The Emperor by uh, Richard Kapuscinski will, uh, will have this dynamic where they just tell the bosses what they think they would like to hear. And uh, it's it's a clearly still a problem because, to the best of my knowledge, you know, Putin is uh, very much uh, still under the thrall of uh, 
the the worldview these getting from his generals and from from Russian Russian TV and you know for example um, some some people have tried to tell him no you know please please don't bomb the Azovstal steel plant which is uh, the last place for Ukrainian forces holding up Mariupol and there are about you know a thousand civilians there including children and you know they're showing videos uh, of of these children saying please don't bomb us and Putin says no this is a fake I know this is a fake because my uh, my generals they they briefed me about this they told me it was a fake and uh, yeah. he's he's really in in this obviously he, he has had to uh you know collide with reality uh to to a certain extent because you know he thought they were going to take kiev in uh, a few days and that obviously hasn't happened so they've uh you know they've re- redone their strategy somewhat they pulled out of kiev and chernigov uh in in central ukraine they're they're focusing on the donbass they have a single field commander now which they didn't before which uh western intelligence i remember were very surprised by that they appear to be just running the whole thing out of skype uh out of the you know the sort of little war room they have this kind of james bond style lair in in moscow uh and they were and they were just you know telling everyone what to do long distance and rather than letting the commanders on the ground run things now they do have one such commander it's the general alexander Dvornikov, and uh they and, and and that means they're gonna be able to secure the the logistics better uh it's 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 more they won't be spread so so thin but uh the problem is is uh that that doesn't necessarily mean that you know oh, we've you know suffered all these all these losses then you know uh we're we're going to actually have to dial back our aims you know the indication is that you know even if uh the, the tactical goals uh may, may have changed so much you know they're not trying to get Kiev. uh but but the goal has you know always been the same and you could argue it's been the same for eight years which is to destroy ukraine as we as we know it uh nikolai patrushev who is, uh, you know, uh, he's a secretary of the Security Council. He's uh, one of Putin's close advisors, one of one of a few people that uh, appears to have actually known in advance what exactly they were doing, because most of the Russian elite, you know, had, had no idea, you know, some of the Security Council and the presidential administration even had no idea that they were, this is what they were preparing. Uh, he, he said uh, today that, uh, uh, th- that the West had tried to turn Ukraine into a huge word, an antipode, so some sort of, you know, opposite, or, you know, Putin has used the phrase before, and he used it in his uh, scary declaration of war speech, anti-Russia, uh, because uh, the, uh, they, they see this as this uh, existential, Ukraine is this existential threat, uh, because it's, you know, showing Russia that actually you can have, you know, people who, uh you know we're we're uh, in 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 you know the minds of the russian leadership they are you know one people with with uh russians but they're living under a completely different different political structure and are aligned with with the west rather than with with moscow and that's an existential threat and so that's why they are going to pursue it it seems you know as far as they possibly can and uh the the results if they if they get their way are, are going to be Pretty grim. You know, Padrashev was saying that Ukraine was going to collapse into, you know, break up into several states uh, as as a result of Western yeah. support. So yeah, that that seems to be how they're thinking about it. It's uh, distorted and and pretty grim. I would add to, to just to Max's thing there, just that like yeah, you know, the, the goal, the goal, if 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 the goal ever was to occupy Ukraine, to control Ukraine, to put in a puppet government. Now, it seems that after failing to get Kiev, it really does seem like that, that the policy has just become one of like essentially scorched earth. Like we're just going to burn the place down. Like we're going yeah. to destroy it um, and, and quote unquote, deliberate you. But our form of liberation is really just going to be to, um, you know, d- destroy as much as possible in hopes of, you know, also destroying the Ukrainian state and spirit and, you know, while, while doing so. 
Yeah, I mean, that's Chris, I was going to ask you about Mariupol uh, and how it might fit into this strategy, because one of the things that, that became apparent, again, not a military expert either, but their capacity to hold territory where the Ukrainians have a significant presence is going to be very complicated because not only do you have the resistance of the Ukrainian military, like clearly there's a, a resistance element to the population that would make kind of occupying big chunks of Ukrainian territory difficult. That said, if you look at Mariupol, if it's depopulate a city, you know, by mass killing and deportations. And I mean, I, I hate even kind of talking about this, but then then it's there's less resistance if there's nobody there. Right. And, and so I, I was just uh, when you look at the, the, the potential for the Ru- Russian kind of scorched earth campaign in the Donbass and in the south, what is the, the capacity for Ukraine to to resist or, or what is the possibility of Russia to literally just try to almost repopulate territory um, in ways that obviously would make like a peace, you know, Zelensky couldn't agree to a peace deal that that recognized essentially like uh, an amputation of a big chunk of Ukraine. I mean, how, how do you see the the Ukrainian resistance dealing with this kind of scorched earth campaign? Um, how do they think about Mariupol and whether, you know, how you someday reclaim that? You yeah, know? I think I think Mariupol is 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 emblematic of how Russia wants to, uh, you know, carry out its war now. Um, you know, it tried occupation outside of Kiev. It saw how difficult it was, right? We saw the results, which were, you know, horrific, um, you know, dead bodies in the streets, a lot of resistance from from the local population. You know, people didn't didn't know they needed to flee until it was too late. And Russians had already, you know, rolled into the towns of Bucha and Irpin and uh, Borodyanka and the mill, um, you know. I think I think Russia uh, learned a, a lesson from 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 there, and that is, you know, how difficult occupation can be. You can't just you know storm in and and take control of a place um, without facing significant resistance in Ukraine. Um, you know, Mariupol is is I think how um, Russian forces are going to proceed here on out. You know, um, it just completely bombarding a place with with heavy artillery. Um, you know, forcing people to flee. Um, depopulating towns and cities and villages, um, like you said, that is going to make it a lot easier for them to move in. Um, you know, after they've essentially scorched the earth and blown up everything um, imaginable, um, you know, if they if they move into a town or city, they're going to have a lot easier time holding that territory if there's nobody there who will actually resist them. And, you know, the governors of, of Lugansk and, and Donetsk are rightfully, you know, like asking, pleading with, with civilians to flee these areas because they know what's coming. Everybody has seen what's happened in Mariupol. But unfortunately, what that also means is there's not going to be many people left to actually resist the Russians when they move into these areas. So yeah. I think, you know, what, yeah. what, what could happen and what the, 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 the big fear is, is that, you know, this this area of the, of, of the Donbass, where both sides are, are, you know, really well dug in and have, you know, really fortified positions over eight years of war. Um, you know, Russia's just going to continue to, you know, essentially like carpet bomb these towns, um, you know, with multiple launch rocket systems, um, you know, air raids, um, and, and continue to do so while people flee. And then, 
you know, um, try to try to encircle probably uh, Ukrainian forces um, in, in a move that will see them come up from um, the the north from from Mariupol, sort of swinging a little bit west and swinging southwest from um, the Izum area and try to uh, essentially create this, you know, kettle around Ukrainian forces in Krematorsk and Slavyansk, where a lot of uh, the Ukrainian military is positioned. And if they can do so, then it's it's really going to be, um, you know, a, a pretty grim, you know, um, tough battle for the Ukrainians. A lot of their forces could get um, caught up there. And, uh, you know, there won't be a lot of, uh, I think, you know, a resistance um, left to to help them. Yeah. And I guess a lot of this will also depend on the the scale of support from the West in terms of weapons and resupply and heavier weapons. I mean, Max, I was going to ask you, like, there's this, I've been in these rooms where you, you know, I think to a fault, right? Like you, you impose restraints on what you're doing because you're kind of trying to discern what might be seen as escalatory by a Putin, you know, an offensive weapon system versus a defensive weapon system or an offensive weapon system that could be used into Russian territory versus a system that could be used in a more localized uh, um, battle, you know, th- this, you know, where you, this is that stepping stone, you know, entanglements and anti-aircrafts to heavier artillery and howitzers to helicopters to potentially aircraft and longer range uh, artillery. The question I have for you is just, do, do you think like, you know, Putin is still, abiding by the kind of unwritten rules of, of, of mutual escalation. You know, I mean, it, it this seems like a guy and I re- read your reporting and Twitter feed and the FT has been great on this, but it seems like someone who's like you said, living in just kind of a parallel universe. He's decided he's at war with kind of the entire West. Um, I mean, do, do you think there are types of weapon systems or types of steps by the West that could, that would still invite, some kind of different response from Russia, or does it feel like we're just Russia's at war and and we shouldn't necessarily? I mean, I'm not asking to make the policy recommendation, but but shouldn't necessarily think that there are these different categories of Western support that would invite different responses from Russia. Well, I think you have to remember, you know, how Russia went to war and one of the reasons that you know Russia sees itself as having gone to war. You know, the, um, um, Putin has explained to to everyone, you know, in, in private as far as best as I know, as well as in, in in public, that you know he feels that he was really forced to do this because he felt threatened by what what uh, Ukraine Ukraine was turning into, which is the own country that was you know, increasingly Western aligned, even if it wasn't going to to join. NATO. It was uh, uh, he. He felt it was uh, basically being turned into a NATO country, uh, you know, by by another name. Uh, given given all the increasing military cooperation that was going on, which of course, you know, what was happening before the war is a fraction of of, uh, of what the Ukrainians have have now. But but this is um, uh, in in a sense, he sees himself as responding to this uh, essential threat. And there was a bit of a chicken or the egg issue. You know, was it Ukraine or was it you know the paranoid about the West encirclement, NATO expansion? uh all all this stuff over decades it's obviously both because he's you know he's very paranoid about ukraine he has to be so specific uh really imperial views about about ukraine but it's obviously about a lot more more than just ukraine and uh he's he's made it pretty clear that you know the the, the big war at the end of the day 
for for Russia, it isn't with Ukraine. He doesn't think that Ukraine and Ukrainians have any agency. He thinks it's just a puppet regime run run by the West. And there's a sense where Putin is really the master of uh, projection uh, in in that um, uh, everything that, that he is doing, he he loves to project back onto the West. And you know, he did create these uh, these puppet regimes that basically are just just complete tools to the Russian government in the separatist areas of uh, Donetsk and uh, Lugansk. And he uh, has uh, said uh, many times that you know he thinks that uh, the Zelensky's government is the same thing, except that the the U.S. is running it. And uh, the the issue is it's um. Uh, I think I think uh, there there appears to be from Western governments, you know, less concern than there was before the war. You know, the fact that just today, uh, Germany uh, finally sent some uh, some um, armored um, they're called Gepards, right? The, the Cheetah, the uh, mobile anti-aircraft uh, armored armored weapons uh, to, to Ukraine, which is a huge U-turn for for Germany. They were dragging their their heels in more than. Any country, and uh, I think I think the months of uh, Ukrainian you know, shaming of the German government for thirty years of complicity with Russia it seems seems to have worked. But uh, there's <laughs> there's a sense where you know on on, on the one hand um, this is a dilemma that I imagine that you know policymakers in the U.S. and Europe have is on the one hand you don't want to uh, antagonize him any anymore because there's still a lot more that he could do. You know he he hasn't used uh, chemical biological or or nuclear weapons in in Ukraine yet it's uh, he he also remember you know the conflict is currently limited to Ukraine uh this this may not go on forever yeah. right now we are seeing a lot of uh, worrying rumblings around uh, Moldova the separatist region of Transnistria which which borders uh Ukraine and uh, suggestions that Russia could could start something there uh Poland is is and and, and the Baltics are you know always always the first to be worried because they have have borders with Russia that, that something could happen to them. And, um, you know, that, that is a danger, you know, you don't want to do that. That's why some of, um, you know, the most, um, uh, dramatic things that Ukraine has called for, like like a uh, no fly zone, uh, which is, you know, no fly zone, something you know yeah. more about than me, but, um, they, they seem to have, uh, you know, Dialed, dialed that one back a bit, but you know the, the sort of things that you know would directly lead to World War III if they were you know implemented by by the U.S. Yeah. Uh, the the problem is is that you know if if Russia already thinks that it is fighting World War III just you know in a sort of proxy fashion with with the West or this is you know some sort of particularly you know nasty version of you know say like the various conflicts in Africa during the Cold War that were essentially proxy wars. Way, or you know, in Afghanistan in the eighties is the best example between between the U.S. and Russia, where and yeah. and uh, you know quite quite a few American policymakers and you know they've been reported by the CIA. They've you know seen seen this in in the in in, in the very same frame as uh, U.S. support for the Mahajdeen in nineteen uh, eighties. You know, they're they they've been giving Ukrainians you know the same missiles, you know, Stingers, which have been very effective against against yep. Russian air power. And uh, the other side is you know if you know what's 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 he going to do? You know, there was some. Um, I, I, I thought it was quite funny the, the reaction that the um, Alexei Navalny, you know, the jailed Russian opposition leader, his people have been campaigning a lot recently for the U.S. to sanction Alina Kapaiva, who is a Putin-supported mistress. Uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, the U.S. has confirmed that you know she has at least uh, three kids with him, and uh, and and apparently they they backed out at, at the last minute because they were worried that that Putin would react in some sort of unpredictable and dangerous way. And the Navalny people, you know, did have a good point, which is you know what's he going to do? You know, invade Ukraine, 
uh, you know, ra- yeah, ra- yeah, raise the city yeah, to yeah, the ground, exactly. you know, execute hundreds of civilians in occupied towns. You know, God forbid yeah, he should do yeah. that. You know, we should provoke him. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's a problem to which there is no good answer. And uh, that's that's why it's so difficult. But it does seem that we're already in some sort of escalatory spiral. And the question is, you know, how long events? Because I know that Ukrainian officials are certainly worried, you know, um, there there seems to be some, you know, renewed optimism in Ukraine that they could win, that they could actually drive Russia back and take back more territory. But then does that push Putin to, you know, do something really horrible, like use a tactical, tactical nuclear weapon? You know, we don't know. But, uh, you know, the fact that we're not ruling this yeah. out off the bat is itself pretty worrying and indicative, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, you never like to, to have that in your head. Um, well, I just, one last question for both you guys. I mean, you know, you guys have both covered this war from different perspectives, you know, uh, from for many years. Um, uh, and, you know, back to the earlier days in the Donbass uh, and then up through today. Um, I'm just wondering in the last couple of months, I mean, uh, is it, what what is there a, an, an image, a conversation, an experience that really jumps out as um, as as like like the most vivid um, manifestation of of where where we ended up here, which is someplace that you know even I think in 2014 or 15 you you you, you would have hoped that something like this would never happen. I mean, it, something you know that is really kind of driven home for you guys. Um, just how much has changed in people's lives, you know, um, in the course of the last um, two months. I mean, Chris, you were obviously in Ukraine. Uh, Max, you had to basically deal with having to leave a country that I'm sure, you know, you had a lot of relationships in. I mean, w- what's a what's an image that you would leave our, our listeners with of, of like um, uh, of, of something that stands out to you guys? I know, Chris, if you want to go first. Sure. Um, you know, there there are a lot of a lot of, um, I would say, you know, specific moments or 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 interviews that I did or or, or things that I cover on the ground that have really stuck with me. Um, but but I think something that I get the sense that um, a lot of people were shocked by um, that seems to be this really scary new reality is is actually something that Max ended on in that last um, that last answer, and that is you know we. I think, you know, speaking and interviewing a lot of Ukrainians, um, you know, I think a lot of people knew what Russia was capable of, but didn't think that we would be where we are now, that it would invade in a in a massive full scale way, you know, with missiles falling across the country on civilian areas. And we'd have like, you know, the thousands and thousands of of, of deaths and casualties that that we've seen. Um, and and just like uh, an unimaginable level of of like of, of destruction and, and lives torn apart, and you know I I I, I think the con- I've had a lot of conversations with with Ukrainians, um, you know, regular civilians and and government types and military types who've said, you know, that they they fear that nothing is off the table um, for for Putin now. And that, you know, really we need to be prepared for anything. And I think that's terrifying, you know, and, and something yeah. that is, you know, very much in the minds of people in Ukraine and, and probably many people outside of Ukraine's borders as well is, is what Max said. And that is, you know, if the Ukrainians continue having the success that they're having, if Western support does end up, you know, bolstering um, the Ukrainians' defense and, 
they're able to start taking back territory uh, or, or just humiliate, you know, just, just defeat, defeat Russian forces in this really humiliating way. You know, what is he going to do next? I think you have to be prepared for whatever the next worst thing is, because we didn't expect, yeah. most people didn't expect what we're seeing now to happen. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, is, is, is something I'm constantly concerned about and thinking about and, you know, having conversations about with the, the, you know, the people I speak with in Ukraine, um, you know, outside of that, I would say, you know, it's really difficult to get out of my mind the, the amount of, and the type of atrocities that have been carried out by Russian forces. Uh, it's, it's, it's worse than, you know, the, biggest scaremongers could have imagined and, and put out there. It's, it's absolutely horrific. Yeah. And, you know, there's no way to, to not think about it. And unfortunately, I think there's going to be a lot more of that, um, that, that happens before there's any sort of anything resembling a resolution, unfortunately. I, I, yeah. I, I just jump in there, uh, you know, based, based on what Chris said, uh, something I think that, uh, you know, some, some listeners might not fully realize the extent to which uh, no one in Moscow thought that this was possible, including you know, people who have known Putin for decades. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, a really uh, staggering number of people within uh, Putin's own government, within the presidential administration, uh, even even some members of, of Security Council, in my understanding, they had uh, no no idea that this was going to happen. They thought you know that something you know was possible that would be limited. You know the the answer that I would hear most would be uh, you know the Georgian War, you know some sort of quick you know four or five day thing to teach Ukrainians a lesson and get a new a new peace deal. The the idea that it would be this absolutely enormous uh, full on invasion was just completely shocking to people. I remember uh, I, I went to see someone a few days after the war started. Uh, the last time I'd seen him was uh, a few weeks earlier, and he had uh, you know, insisted that someone who'd known Putin for decades, he'd uh, insisted uh, you know, up and down to me, you know, Putin is a really smart, rational guy. He's, you know, more isolated, but uh, he has like less, you know, broad information available to him, but he still makes rational decisions based on the invasion he has. He, you know, he tries to, you know, balance things and uh, I see him and uh, the guy says, you know, Putin's lost his mind. And, uh, and I said, so when, when do you think that Putin lost his mind? And he thought for a long time when he thought, you know, you could you could start, you know, thinking about it now, you know, you could start seeing it in 2007 when he, you know, he made his famous speech at the Munich Security Conference against the U.S.-led world world order. And I guess he finally, you know, he went crazy in 2014. He just didn't feel that he'd been backed into a corner to the extent that he did until now. So this is why we're only seeing seeing the full extent of it. Now, but it's this really amazing, you know, people I speak to, uh, you know, people in and around the Kremlin, um, oligarchs, you know, you, 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 um, um, you call them up and, uh, they're, they're, um, in, 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 in complete shock. And the one, one question I, I ask people is, uh, there's this uh, great Russian phrase. It means, um, uh, to be, to be in a, sh- in a state of, uh, total shock and, 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 and disbelief. And, and I, and I ask everyone, you know, like, and like, oh, you know, everyone is losing their mind. You know, this head of a state company was so depressed by the war that he didn't come out of his office for several weeks. He wouldn't sign, you know, any documents, all the papers backed up. Uh, this guy, you know, he wanted to leave, leave Russia, but then he, or he maybe even did leave Russia, but, but, but change his, his, his mind. And, uh, I, the extent to which even people, 
in 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 the system didn't didn't see this coming i think is uh really astonishing the problem is is that uh now uh more people feel like they're backed into a corner because uh what's 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 funny is if 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 you talk to people who uh you know from various various spectrums of Russian society the extent to which they feel like they do have some sort of collective responsibility for this and sort of collective guilt, which is something that a lot of Ukrainians will say, this is, you know, this isn't just Putin. This is, you know, Putin is reflecting some imperial tendencies in uh, Russian, Russian society, which is, uh, I think, partly true to a certain extent, but not the whole story. Uh, but but um, when you talk to people in the elite about this, you know, I, I, I've talked to people who are on a sanctions list and I say, well, do, do, do you not feel that uh, there's uh, a certain, uh, you know, you, you know, maybe maybe some of these people were in the room with Putin when he had the oligarch meeting the other day that he did the invasion, or they, you know, they've had businesses that have you know become you know multi-billion-dollar corporations based off their ties to the state. They've run major state corporations that you know uh, are are parts of the system. And I said, you know, there were things that happened in your life that you brought you to that room on that day, or that you know put you in. In, in contact with Putin, and you know, some some people do have a kind of you know decent amount of introspection about this, but a lot of others don't. And um, you you will hear people say things like, "This is really unfair that I was placed under sanctions." You know, why why me? You know, yeah, uh, yeah, I yeah. I didn't start the war. You think, well, what, what about you know? I've got friends in Kharkiv. You know, it's not it's not fair that you know they have to hide in their basements because their their city is being destroyed by artillery and. An airstrike. So what's and what's uh, dangerous is that you 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 seem to see this tendency where, because um, a lot of these people are you know now they're completely cut off from the West where they used to be. You know, uh, have have one foot in Russia, one foot in in the West, or you know, some of them would even spend the vast majority of their time in the West. Now, now they're kind of you know stuck with Putin. And the danger that you hear from some of these people is that they will you know be be kind of embittered against the West, and this will actually create some kind of rally around the flag effect. They'll say, oh, you took my my out away. Well, you know, fuck you. I'm going to go, you know, help Putin to do all the things that, uh, you know, I may have been, you know, against to a certain extent before. And this also, it's also a kind of logic in the system. You know, I've been, I've been told, I, you know, I asked, you know, and so who's, who's against the war, like out of uh, people, people in the government, oligarchs, you know, state corporation heads, whatever. And you'll hear these absolutely astonishing names and 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 you'll think well if that's true why why did you know this guy why why did he you know just just give some you know big big bullshit statement that i just saw saying oh yes i support the special operation to liberate the Donbass, and i fully support our our president and uh, you, you have to understand inside you know he feel he feels very conflicted about this but he feels like he has no choice his duty is to support the president and um yeah, and uh, that's that's the implication is that people are going to kind of you know, rally around Putin, and there isn't really much that uh, anyone can do about that. Yeah, well, sobering place to end here, which I mean, from what both you guys said, you know, suggests that we've got a lot more to this, and and it it can get worse, but um, I guess we can hope it doesn't. Um, but thank you guys so much for uh, for checking in here. It's really it, we've really. I know everybody's been following you guys, your reporting, your social media. Um, so it's great to have the chance here to check in with you. So uh, Chris, stay safe when you get back out there. And um, you know, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to checking in, in the future. Thanks, Ben. All right, thank you. Thanks to Chris. Thanks to Max for uh, joining the show. Uh, who else do we need to thank? Pierce Morgan, Meghan Markle, uh, Elon Musk, 
That might be it. Anybody else have been missing up with my like shifting schedule tonight, UK time? You gotta love the fact that I'm eight hours ahead of you, and I'm the guy who's late. Dude, you're eight hours ahead. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's brutal. Um, but uh, well, we'll let you go yeah, to bed. I know. I'll, I'll be back in studio next week, so that'll be easier to manage. All right. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you next week. All right. See ya. Positive the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support and to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes as videos at youtube.com slash crooked media. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.